This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Motivated by Love. In the first half, Russell T. Osgothorpe shares his address, What If Love Were Our Only Motive? Then in the second half, William B. Lund speaks on For God So Loved You. It is great to be with you today. As that choir was singing, it reminded me that my wife and I met with our seats assigned next to each other in a choir, just like that, a few years back, and we've been sitting next to each other ever since. (laughs) This place is really like a second home to me. I've spent a good part of my adult life at BYU. When people ask me how long I've been here, which they do at times, I say I came with Carl G. Mazur. (laughs) So this is where we met. This is where our children received their education. It's where I came to understand that learning can go on forever. I love the students here. I love the staff. I love the faculty. I love games like the one we had with Wyoming on Saturday. (laughs) I like championships. I love BYU. When I'm walking across campus, I like to say hello to as many people as I can. I especially like it if they say hello back. I guess it's my retro way of doing social networking. (laughs) I once looked at a student approaching me on the sidewalk. She was on her cell phone, which oftentimes we are, but she still gave me a cell phone wave. (laughs) Quite often, those I pass on the sidewalk are using headphones. But sometimes I even get a headphone nod, or this morning I got a headphone smile. (laughs) Once I was sitting outside a conference room in the library working on my laptop. A student approached me and asked a little awkwardly, So, uh, what are you doing? I explained that I was waiting for a meeting. But then I closed my laptop, stood up, and said, You know, students never do that to me. They never just come up and start a conversation. Why did you do that? He responded, Well, I thought I might learn something. We had a memorable conversation. He had just returned from a mission and shared some of his favorite experiences with me. Meeting new people can enrich our lives in miraculous ways. My wife and I recently visited Bucaramanga, Colombia, on a church assignment. Bucaramanga is a city of 1.2 million very friendly people. In fact, they pride themselves on being the most friendly city on the planet. When we arrived, many were there to greet us. They made us feel like we were the most important people they had ever met. We had never been to this city before. We had never seen the people who were greeting us. And yet, we felt their love. Love is one of the most powerful positive forces in existence. One of the strongest statements in all of Scripture—and this occurs twice in Moroni—for if ye have not charity, ye are nothing. No matter how competent we might be, how bright, how talented, how athletic, how attractive, how hardworking, if we're not acting out of love, we're nothing. Those people in Bukaramanga were not thinking of themselves. They were not trying to prove anything to anyone. They were simply reaching out to us in love. And that student who approached me in the library literally made my day. His willingness to step outside himself for a minute lifted me. 
While teaching a missionary preparation course, I asked students to keep track of key indicators as they would be doing on the mission field. One of the key indicators was to talk to people. Just saying hi was not enough. They needed to have a real conversation with each new person they met. I explained that on their missions, all day, every day, they would be meeting people for the first time and that they needed to practice this skill prior to their mission if they wanted to enter the field prepared. This assignment did not count on their grade, but students invested themselves in it with real energy and commitment. Each week, they would text or email me their results for the week. One week, a student reported having conversations with 72 people he had never met before. It's impressive, huh? I asked him in class, I said, how did you do that in one week? How did you visit with so many? He responded, oh, I was standing in lines a lot this past week, and so I would just ask the person next to me to hold my place in the line, and then I would move through the line and introduce myself and talk to as many people as I could. I recommend you try this, by the way, <laughs> because this is what he told me at the end. He said, You know, Brother Osgothorpe, the surprising thing is that I really think I made some friends that I will have the rest of my life. Think of that for a minute. All he did was just meet people. There is real power in simply reaching out to others and becoming acquainted. I once asked a student on the sidewalk how things were going. He said, Hey, BYU is all right, but I just don't know anybody yet. It's pretty lonely at times. My hope is that BYU will not only be known for its high rankings in academics and sports, but that it will, like Bucaramanga, Colombia, be known as the most friendly place on the planet. Being friendly is a great thing because it's the only way we can move from acquaintance to lasting friendship. Several weeks into the semester in my missionary preparation course, I received an email from a student who up to that point had never come to class. I assumed that he had dropped the course. The email simply said, I haven't been coming to class. I don't know if there's any way I can still complete the course. Could I come and talk with you? I set an appointment to see him. He came to my office accompanied by his resident assistant. The resident assistant explained, I overheard him last night saying that he had never attended his missionary prep class, so I suggested that he email you and come and talk. I told the student that he had missed a number of assignments and he would need to complete each one or he would fail the course. As the teacher, I further explained that if he could complete all the past assignments, come to every class for the remainder of the semester, turn in all future assignments on time, and successfully complete the final, he would be able to receive a passing grade. The next day, he sent me a detailed plan for meeting all the conditions we had laid out. He never missed another class, handed in every assignment, he did well on the final exam, and passed the course. The resident assistant helped him along the way. He even attended the first class with him to make sure he had a good experience on that first day. I asked the resident assistant what had motivated him to help this student. He explained, Well, I made a commitment during my mission that when I returned to BYU, I would help freshmen prepare for their missions. In other words, for the resident assistant, the needs of a freshman took precedence over his own needs. He cared enough for this freshman student that he helped him write the email message, 
came with him to visit with me and kept in touch with him until the freshman had completed the course. I saw that freshman on the sidewalk the following semester. He was with some friends but ran up to me and told me that he was about to submit his application to serve a mission. He thanked me for permitting him to complete the course and said, I don't know what would have happened if you had not helped me. I said, I didn't really do anything. It was that resident assistant that made the difference in your life. I keep asking myself, what if our only motive were love? What if everything we did, we did out of love? There are all kinds of motives out there, and many of them are not pretty. We might be motivated by revenge or envy or greed. Selfish motives are abundant. As students, we might be motivated only by grades or by a desire to get into graduate school or begin a career. These are not necessarily evil motives, but they're not enough. We might get straight A's, we might get into the best graduate school, or we might land the best job offer imaginable. But again, as Moroni taught, if we have not charity, we are nothing. We can even do good things with less than laudable motives. Quoting his father Mormon, Moroni wrote, If we give a gift and doeth it grudgingly, it is counted the same as if we had retained the gift. Wherefore, we are counted evil before God. Motives matter. They matter a lot. In the end, why we do things is probably more important than what we do. Evil acts are always motivated by evil motives, but acts that might appear to be good on the surface may not be fueled by pure motives. And one of the purest motives of all is love. So is it possible to do everything we do out of love? Is it possible to study because we love the Lord and His children? Is it possible to be motivated by love when we take a test or read a chapter in the textbook, complete an assignment, or answer a question in class? Is it possible to love someone who has wronged us? Can love be our only motive? We know what it feels like to have compassion, as did the Good Samaritan. But we might also know what it feels like to ignore someone in need, as did the priest and the Levite as they passed by the Samaritan, worrying more about themselves than about the one in need. Motives matter. It's important to remember that we should not try to judge another's motives, but we can judge our own motives. We need to look inside and take stock. Are we doing what we do out of love, or has some other motive taken over? We can easily relate to the story of the prodigal son. We have likely all made decisions that led us away from what is good and right. Then, like the prodigal son, we have come to ourselves, woken up, and repented. But we might also be able to relate to the brother of the prodigal son, who resented his brother for all the positive attention he was getting from their father. The father's only motive was love for both of his sons. He freely forgave the one and eagerly entreated the other to come in and celebrate the return of a family member. We need to have a special kind of love to rejoice more in the success of others than in our own successes. When Alma met Ammon and his brothers following their mission to the Lamanites, Alma rejoiced in his own success, but he rejoiced even more in the success of his brethren. 
Now when I think of the success of these my brethren, my soul is carried away, even to the separation of it from the body, as it were. So great is my joy. When others' needs start to matter more than our own, and when others' successes are more exciting to us than our own, we are beginning to experience the kind of love that our Father in Heaven and our Savior have for us. It is a love without dimension. It has no boundaries, no limitations. It is pure. It is infinite. It is eternal. Oh, how I want to have more of this love for others. My wife's brother Steve became less active in the Church at the age of 15. He married outside the Church and for many years asked that home teachers not visit him. This is how Steve tells his own story. I was assigned a home teacher. When he called me, I said something like, I don't want to be contacted. My wife is not interested. He asked if he could at least make contact once in a while and made sure I understood he was there for us if a need arose. For 22 years, every month, I faithfully received a postcard from that home teacher with a kind thought or just a hello, hope things are going well for you. I had never met him for the first 18 years, yet every month he made his home teaching contact the only way he could. That contact became very important to me when we found out my wife had brain cancer in 1996. We never had children, so I was the primary caregiver for her during her 23-month illness. I was helped by 12 wonderful women who were friends, neighbors, or co-workers. One day, the Ward Relief Society president came by our home to offer help. My wife was asleep at the time, and I didn't want to wake her, so that visit never happened. But that contact by that Relief Society president was more important to me, I think, as it softened my heart. My wife of 31 years passed away ten days later. Following his wife's death, Steve needed help in planning the funeral. Where do you think he turned for help? His home teacher of 22 years, the one who had faithfully written all those cards. How easy would it have been for that home teacher not to complete his calling? Some of us have a difficult time home teaching people who welcome us, but he stayed with it. Five years later, Steve remarried. His second wife was a faithful member of the Church. His pathway back to full activity in the Church began. Last year, Steve was ordained a priest and then received the Melchizedek priesthood all after 50 years of inactivity in the Church. When we care for someone, we want to do something for them. Steve's home teacher cared enough to do something, to write literally hundreds of cards to the one he had been assigned to visit. The Relief Society president cared enough to visit at exactly the right moment for Steve. I am convinced that there are people all around us who need that kind of caring, that kind of love. All we need to do is open our eyes and our ears and our hearts so that we can know what we need to do for others. We have likely all noticed how our prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, shows his love to others. Following a program in the conference center in which 7,000 youth performed on stage or in the aisles, a 12-year-old deacon sang as part of the finale. 
Following his song, President Monson motioned to the young man to come to him. The young man made his way off the stage to the front row in the audience where President Monson was sitting. They greeted each other while everyone in the conference center waited in silence. Then the young man went back up on stage and got swarmed by all of the other youth in the cast. Everyone wanted to shake the hand of someone who had just shaken the hand of the Prophet. At the end of the evening, President Monson stayed to greet as many young people as he possibly could. We watched as a Prophet of God expressed his love to the youth of the Church. At one point, he went on stage and shook the hand of a row of young people in wheelchairs. These were youth with multiple disabilities. Some could not acknowledge President Monson's handshake with speech, but I am quite certain that each could feel his love. While serving as an Area 70, I once accompanied Elder Russell M. Nelson to a state conference in which a new state president was being called. As is the usual practice, we briefly interviewed approximately 30 Church leaders in the stake. Elder Nelson asked the state clerk to attach a picture of each leader to the leader's one-page bio. After we had issued the call to the new stake president and his counselors, we had about 45 minutes before the priesthood leadership meeting was to begin. Elder Nelson and I were in the stake president's office preparing for the next meeting. I was reviewing the message I was planning to deliver, but I noticed that Elder Nelson was going over the one-page bio sheets of each Church leader we had just interviewed. I wondered why he was reviewing the information so carefully. We had already completed the calling of the new stake presidency. Then when Elder Nelson stood to speak during priesthood leadership meeting, I understood. As he taught, he called upon Church leaders by name. He would say, Brother Johnson, Brother Anderson, would you stand and tell us about how this happens in your ward? Those we had interviewed for only a few minutes each, he was calling them by name. He had never met these leaders before interviewing them, but knew their names. While I was preparing my message for the meeting, he was memorizing their names, looking at their pictures and their bios so he could call upon them by name in the meeting. He would likely never see most of the leaders again in his ministry, but he took the time to learn their names. When I have shared this experience with others, they often say, Yes, Elder Nelson has a remarkable memory for names. But where has that skill come from? He cares enough about others to learn their names. Most of us could learn 30 names in 45 minutes, but many of us may not think to do so. I know that on this campus we have faculty, even those with very large classes, who make a serious effort to learn students' names. It's a simple thing, but it can change the whole learning-teaching equation. When love underlies our actions as learners and teachers, as human beings, everything gets better. The Savior's earthly ministry was a time of teaching, a time of miracles. He established His Church on the earth. He called the Twelve to become leaders in the Church. He taught everyone who would listen. He healed the sick and raised the dead. And why did He do all these things? He had only one motive—love. His message to us is that we need to do good and be good, but we need to do it for the right reason. This is precisely why the two greatest commandments are the greatest. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind, and thou shalt love thy neighbor 
as thyself. The motive means everything. We are all on our way to somewhere. We are all making our way forward in life. We may be looking forward to marriage, or if we're married, we may be looking forward to having our first child. We might be looking forward to graduate school or to entering the workforce. We are always on our way to somewhere. My first mission was in Tahiti. I love the way Tahitians greet each other. The literal meaning of their greeting word, yorana, means life to you or that you might live. We are either giving life or taking life from each other as we move forward on our way. Harsh words take life away from the one who receives them, even the one who utters them. But words spoken in love give life. The student who approached me in the library gave me life. This happened again yesterday. Someone asked me if I was speaking at the devotional. He gave me a little life, gave me a boost just by saying hello. The resident assistant gave life to the freshman and actually to me as well. The home teacher and Relief Society president gave life to my brother-in-law, Steve. President Monson gave life to every young person he greeted in the conference center that evening, and Elder Nelson gave life to those Church leaders he called by name. What if all the words we spoke were motivated by love? The Savior's life on earth was short, but He was always reaching out in love every step of the way. He helped so many while He was on His way to help someone else. He noticed what others needed reached out to them and helped them, sometimes in simple ways and other times in miraculous ways. Every miracle he performed, every word he spoke, he did out of love. He loved those he taught. He cared for their spiritual well-being, but he also cared for their temporal needs. When they were hungry, he fed them with five loaves. When their souls hungered, he inspired them with the truths of his gospel. He cared for those who lost their way. He cared enough to find them and bring them home. He never forgot one of his own. He loved the young. He loved the rich. He loved the poor. He loved the sick. He loved the sinner. He loved all of God's children. When he saw them suffering, he healed them. When he saw them sorrowing, he lifted them up. When he saw them in pain, he comforted them. His life on earth was an example of what it means to do good. But it was also a singular example of what it means to do good for the right reason. Every act of the Savior on earth was done out of love. Even in the great premortal council, his offer to the Father was motivated by love for others, while the adversaries was motivated by selfishness. The Savior's mission was to give us life by allowing us to choose to love the Lord and follow Him. The adversary's goal was to take away our agency and thereby make it impossible for us to love, because it is impossible to love unless we choose to love. Love has to come from within. It cannot be forced upon us. So for purposes of his own selfish aims, the adversary would have made it impossible for us to keep the first two commandments. He would have made us into nothing. Christ had a clear mission in mortality. He came to earth to save each of us. He knew how His life on earth would end and how His act of love for us would change everything. 
Each of us has a clear mission as well, but like the Savior, we need to remain open to the needs of others we pass along the way. Our calendars can never be so packed that we don't have room to show love to those around us. We're studying the New Testament this year in Sunday School. This book of Scripture is a story of love—the love of the Father for the Son and the love they have for each of us. We cannot fully comprehend this love, but we can feel it. We cannot fully emulate it, but we can pray with all the energy of heart that we might be filled with it. It is a love that transcends all of our mortal experience. It is a love that lifts and builds and strengthens, that calms and comforts us. The only way for us to increase our capacity to love in this way is to feel the love our Father in Heaven and His Son have for us. The more we feel their love for us, the more we will increase our capacity to share that love with others. The Savior never stopped teaching us this lesson of love. Even among His final words were words of love. Even when He was on the cross and ready to complete His mission, He reached out in love to those who were literally taking His life. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even when He was suffering more pain than any of us can imagine, He still had love for those around Him, including the very people who were nailing His body to the cross. The Savior is our example in everything, not only in what we should do, but why we should do it. His life on earth was a life of invitation to us to raise our sights a little higher, to forget our own problems and reach out to others. I know that we are all loved by God, the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Their love is infinite and eternal. I know that they live. I bear witness of that. I know that they are mindful of our needs. They have called prophets in this dispensation to help us learn what we need to learn to return to their presence. They have given us the scriptures to guide us, all this because they love us. My prayer is that we will feel that love every minute of every day and that we will share that love with everyone in our path. I bear that testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Motivated by Love. We've just heard from Russell T. Osgothorpe. After the break, we'll return with William B. Lund and For God So Loved You. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Motivated by Love. Next is William B. Lund, Associate University Librarian for Information Technology at the time of this address, titled, For God So Loved You. How many of you recall seeing the great arch of the Milky Way spanning the sky over your head, along with millions of stars covering the dome of the heavens? One of the things that I forget living in a city is the glory of that night sky, stretching from one horizon to the other. Prior to the industrialization of our society, 
the view of the night sky filled with stars would have been common. It is breathtaking to realize that these stars seen from Earth are only a few of the stars in our Milky Way galaxy, which is estimated to contain on the order of 300 billion stars. The center of our galaxy is about 27,000 light years from our sun. Sometime back, our friends who have a cabin in San Juan Mountains of southern Colorado invited us to a star party, where a group gathered far from the city lights with their telescopes to view interesting features, such as planets in our own solar system, nebula, as well as the Andromeda Galaxy, our nearest galactic neighbor. The telescopes ranged in size from small refracting telescopes on tripods to large reflecting telescopes that needed a ladder to get to the eyepiece. As powerful as these amateur telescopes were, research into astronomy requires much more powerful instruments. One of those powerful telescopes is the Hubble Space Telescope, built in 1990. It orbits at about 350 miles above the Earth, far above the interference of the atmosphere. The Hubble's mirror is 2.4 meters in diameter, and the entire telescope weighs over 10 tons. Since its launch, it has made over 1 million observations, resulting in over 100 terabytes of data. Astronomers from all over the world use the Hubble in their research. Saturn is, in my view, the most beautiful planet in our solar system and only lies about 1.1 light hours from Earth at its nearest approach. Although viewing the planets of our solar system has yielded spectacular results, the Hubble isn't limited to close-range objects. Moving out of our solar system to about 2,000 light years, we see the ring nebula in an image taken by the Hubble. The ring nebula is a star that exploded thousands of years ago with a beautiful nebula, which is the remnants of that star. C. Robert O'Dell noted that the nebula is not like a bagel, but rather it's a jelly donut because it is filled with material in the middle. With Hubble's detail, we see a completely different shape than what's been thought about historically for this classic nebula. The new Hubble observations show the nebula in much clearer detail, and we see things are not as simple as we previously thought, end quote. Viewing objects beyond our own galaxy, the Hubble telescope caught the Pinwheel Galaxy, which is 25 million light years from us. It is estimated that it contains on the order of 100 billion stars, smaller than the 300 billion stars of our own galaxy, but shaped similarly to our own galaxy. What must it be like to be able to perceive the slow spin of this galaxy and the interaction of its stars? Most amazing to me is pointing the Hubble telescope at what appeared to be a minuscule vacant region of the sky, taking multiple exposures adding up to 560 hours. This image captures 5,500 galaxies, and a distance of as much as 3.2 billion light years. The faintest galaxies in the image are one ten billionth the brightness of what the human eye can see. If we assume that this is the same type of image we will see if we were able to view the universe from any direction, the number of galaxies and the number of stars in those galaxies is overwhelming. I feel very, very small. Moses, recording in the Pearl of Great Price, his vision of God's creations feels the same way, saying in Moses chapter 1, verse 10, quote, Now for this cause I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed, end quote. 
How is it that a planet as small as ours, orbiting a single star out of billions among galaxies that seem endless, can attract the attention of the Creator? In this uh, vision of Moses, Father in Heaven reveals, And worlds without number have I created. I also created them for mine own purpose. And by the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. And as one earth shall pass away, and the heavens thereof, even so shall another come. And there is no end to my works, neither to my words. Father in Heaven then reveals why he attends to our small planet and its population. For behold, this is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of man. Or if I might be permitted to paraphrase this scripture, For behold, this is my work and my glory, to bring to pass your immortality and eternal life. Our Father in Heaven's work is individual salvation and individual happiness in eternity. We aren't specks in the universal expanse of God's creation, but individuals loved and cherished by God. Whereas we use huge telescopes to see the expanse of God's creation, it is as if our Father in Heaven uses a huge microscope so that he can see each one of us individually and be with us. President Uchtdorf, in the October 2011 General Conference, made similar observations. Quote, But even though man is nothing, it fills me with wonder and awe to think that the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. And while we may look at the vast expanse of the universe and say, What is man in comparison to the glory of creation? God himself said we are the reason he created the universe. His work and glory, the purpose for this magnificent universe, is to save and exalt mankind. President Uchtdorf continues, In other words, the vast expanse of eternity, the glories and mysteries of infinite space and time are all built for the benefit of ordinary mortals like you and me. Our Father in Heaven created the universe that we might reach our potential as his sons and daughters. This is the paradox of man. Compared to God, man is nothing. Yet we are everything to God. While against the backdrop of infinite creation we may appear to be nothing, we have a spark of eternal fire burning within our breast. We have the incomprehensible promise of exaltation, worlds without end within our grasp. And it is God's great desire to help us reach it. End quote. If there is anything that I can do from this podium today, it is to share with you the love that God and His Son have for us and the personal attention they give each one of us. At the risk of starting with the trivial, I'd like to share examples from my own life that shows our Father in Heaven cares for even the smallest problems. As was said in the introduction, I have a PhD in computer science. What's not mentioned is that my Ph.D. was awarded this year in the April graduation. Nine years ago, as I was attending the general priesthood session of general conference, I was struck with a strong prompting to get a Ph.D. in computer science. My initial reaction was mixed. Since I love learning, but the work that a Ph.D. requires is enormous. Soon after I started my Ph.D., I was called as a bishop in a BYU singles ward, which seemed on the surface to make the task even more impossible. The first experience in Heavenly Father's individual love for me during my PhD program was I found that I got more accomplished when I was a father, 
a bishop with a full-time job working towards tenure as a member of the library faculty and beginning a Ph.D. program. At the end of my calling as a bishop, it seemed like I had more difficulties making progress. As a bishop, I seemed to be able to focus my attentions on my family, my employment, my calling, and the Ph.D. work. After my release as a bishop, I commented to my wife that I wish they would call me as a bishop again so that I could move through my Ph.D. program more quickly. Another example deals with personal revelation. During my Ph.D. coursework, there was a significant concept that I could not wrap my mind around. Needless to say, this was frustrating and made me question my participation in the Ph.D. program altogether. One night after my family had gone to bed, and after having spent the better part of the day trying to internalize the concept, I turned in frustration to my Heavenly Father. My prayer to Him was simply that I had tried to understand but had failed. If He didn't directly help me, I would not succeed. I turned the problem over to Him. Within ten minutes of that prayer, my understanding was opened and I was able to proceed. I marveled at this. Why should the Creator of heaven and earth care about what was effectively a trivial problem compared to the troubles of the world and the scope of all of His creations? Aren't there more desperate prayers to be answered? I was taught by this and have remembered since that my Heavenly Father cares about what I care about in righteousness. Even though my problem was minuscule, He intervened and moved me forward because it was important to me. Another experience I would like to share concerns my brother when he served in the U.S. Army in Vietnam 45 years ago. Regarding current relations between Vietnam, the USA, and the Church, I read recently that three Vietnamese members of the Church were recognized by the Vietnamese government as the Interim Representative Committee of the Church in Vietnam. There are currently over 1,600 members of the Church in Vietnam, according to the Church's press release. It is wonderful that peace and cooperation have replaced the hostility between our two countries, leading to this first step in the recognition of the Church in their good country. Clearly, the Spirit of the Lord has brought peace. However, returning to the events of 45 years ago, in which hostilities were fierce, my brother enlisted in the Army preferring to be a medical evacuation pilot over an attack helicopter pilot. Although the casualty rate for medical evacuation was quite high, he chose this way to serve his country. Of the 13 pilots who graduated with him in the medical evacuation pilot training, only six returned, and of those, only three were unharmed. Although everyone who served in that theater of conflict was in harm's way, my brother recounts one particular day where the hand of Heavenly Father, through our grandmother, preserved his life. Some years prior to these events, our maternal grandmother, to whom my brother had been very close, had passed away. On the day of this battle in question, my brother and his medical evacuation team were called to the front lines to evacuate wounded soldiers during a battle. As was their practice, they would circle a short distance from the battlefield until it was possible to land under the cover of fire from attack helicopters. Landing, receiving the wounded, and taking off again placed them in great danger, since they had to hover in a single place as they landed, making themselves an easy target. On this particular day, they had made a run to a battle location previously, and the commanding officer asked my brother and his team to return to the same battle site due to additional severely wounded soldiers. The fighting was intense, and my brother recalls fear that was in everyone's hearts. 
they successfully retrieved the wounded despite the heavy fighting. After he landed back at the military base, he said that he could barely walk, sitting on the edge of the helicopter's cockpit door, shaking. He said that he had never felt his grandmother's presence so strongly as at this time, providing him with protection. Later, he was told that on his way out of the combat zone, he had unknowingly flown over a camouflaged anti-aircraft installation. Why they had not fired on him, he does not know. When I was talking to my brother about this experience, he said to me that he knows that Heavenly Father knows his name, who he is, and what he needs. He knows this as surely as the sun rises each morning. Related to this, my parents were justifiably concerned for my brother's safety. Once, my mother told me of a night when she was crying for concern of my brother. Without warning, the room filled with light as if there had been a lightning bolt outside, and she felt the presence of her mother. She heard her mother's voice saying, Anne, Richard will be okay. You don't need to worry. This promise was fulfilled not only in the event I just related, but in my brother's entire tour of service in the military. I've wondered whether the experience of my brother in Vietnam and my mother's prayer occurred near the same time, but I have no way of knowing that. From these two experiences, I've learned that our loved ones who have passed on, under the guidance of our Heavenly Father, can be actively involved in our lives on earth. The last example I'd like to share with you is from the book In Quiet Desperation, Understanding the Challenge of Same-Gender Attraction by Fred and Marilyn Mattis and Ty Mansfield, who is also associated with North Star International. North Star, not formally associated with nor supported by the LDS Church, provides help and support to individuals struggling with same-gender attraction within the context of the teachings of the Church and the Gospel. I became aware of this organization when, as a bishop helping ward members with same-gender attraction, I needed to open my mind and my understanding of this very difficult problem and the pain that ward members were experiencing. In Quiet Desperation shares experiences of individuals struggling with this problem. One of the accounts relates, quote, I have to believe that our Father in Heaven, as a literal parent, loves me personally, is interested in my life and progress, and is willing to bestow upon me whatever blessing I truly need and am open to receive. President Brigham Young said poignantly, If you do not believe that God is your Heavenly Father, cease to call Him Father. And when you pray, pray to some other character. End quote. Indeed, if we don't believe that our Heavenly Father is our Father, then why do we address Him as such? We should believe what we say. The account continues with an analogy of the story of the Israelites fleeing Egypt only to encounter the impassable Red Sea. At this point, many of the Israelites wanted to return to Egypt and slavery rather than having faith in their God and His prophet. Quote, When my back was against the sea and my feet were pointing toward Egypt, I have felt the delivering power of my Redeemer. I have seen the salvation of the Lord through sacred personal experiences. During the period of my greatest struggle, all I knew to do was continue doing that which I knew how to do, to study His word and pray for understanding. As I have left my heart open, even my times of doubt and fear, to potentially feeling the comfort and the instruction of the Spirit, He has helped me through personal spiritual experiences to internalize for the first time in my life 
certain principles I had always believed already known. As I felt the power and grace of Christ actively working in me, I felt the glimmer of hope and the fire of faith begin again to grow brighter in my heart. My barriers of doubt and faithlessness were being parted, and I was given the strength and desire to continue forward once again. End quote. I don't know why we suffer with problems such as same-gender attraction, alcoholism, and addictions, other than that we live in a fallen world, subject to the temptations of Satan, the corruptibility of mortality, and a world that brings forth thorns and thistles to afflict us. However, I know that we are also subject to the love of our Heavenly Father as we struggle with our individual problems. Sacred personal experiences break through the darkness of this celestial world and show us the way. I've recounted instances where our Father in Heaven has directly intervened in individuals' lives from tender mercies to life-altering experiences. One of the dangers in this life is forgetting what you already know and have experienced. Remember what Father in Heaven has already done for you. Refresh your memories. Seek new spiritual experiences. It is all too easy to forget and to deceive ourselves. These tender mercies and life-altering experiences are there to give you hope, faith, and understanding. Remember that your Father in Heaven has already shown His love for you, and because an answer may be no, or more frustrating, there is no response, does not mean that He does not love you. The scriptures are full of examples of people forgetting how their Father in Heaven has helped them. In the journey to the Promised Land, Laman and Lemuel turned on their brother Nephi and were stopped by an angel. Within a few verses, they were complaining again, seemingly as if the angel had never been there at all. The whole Book of Mormon seems to be one cycle of being helped by God, forgetting that they were being helped, running into great problems, repenting and remembering, and then being helped again. One thing to be learned from the Book of Mormon is to not repeat this cycle in your own life. Returning to the analogy of the children of Israel at the shores of the Red Sea from In Quiet Desperation, the account continues, quote, I understand in a personal way the feelings I believe the children of Israel must have felt as they faced the wall of water that caused them to fear and doubt their course as they watched the pursuing Egyptians. As I sometimes have, they forgot the earlier miracles and their earlier illumination. When Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were so afraid. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland commented on those verses. Some said words to this effect, Let's go back. This isn't worth it. We must have been wrong. That probably wasn't the right spirit telling us to leave Egypt. End quote. The children of Israel forgot what they had already experienced and had known, and preferred the slavery in Egypt to the freedom of following the Lord. Remembering all of the interactions our Heavenly Father has had with us should illuminate our current decisions and paths. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter writes of attributes of righteousness such as faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. And then he continues, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Peter is admonishing us whom we have righteousness in us, 
We are fruitful in the knowledge of our Savior, but unrighteousness makes us blind, forgetting how our Savior has blessed us. Forgetting is like saying these experiences never occurred and that we don't value them. Forgetting may lead us to make decisions as if our Father in Heaven has never influenced our lives at all. The painting by local artist Greg Olson titled Lost and Found is one of my favorites. Note the attention the Savior is giving the young man. His body is leaning forward and he is listening intently. Who is the young man? With his backpack, he seems to be on a journey, but he is alone except that the Savior has found him. What is the young man looking for? There is a path leading from the forest. Is this the path that led him to the bench where the Savior was waiting for him? This painting was particularly important to some friends of ours. One of their children had left the family and they did not know where their child had gone. There was nothing that they could do to help since there was no contact and they had no notion where to find their child. This picture was important to them since they could do nothing to help. All they could hope for was that the Savior or someone feeling the Savior's influence was there to help their child. This image says more to me. It also says that it may be one of us who is sent to help with Christ's help and inspiration. On more than one occasion as a bishop, I recall being stopped in my tracks, literally stopped, and told to visit a member of my ward. On many of those occasions, the visit was well-timed to provide help to a ward member. This built my testimony in the Lord's love for my ward members, sending me when and where I was needed. Last week in my awards sacrament meeting, one of the youth speakers, Nicole Terrell, noted that the phone number we call for help is 911, but that we should think upon the number 991 to give help, recalling the Savior's parable of the shepherd leaving the 99 to find the one. Brothers and sisters, I've shared with you examples of our Heavenly Father reaching out. We should seek and identify those experiences in our lives that demonstrate God's love for us and His attention to your needs and your lives. We should remember them and let them encourage and strengthen us. Remember, seek your Father in Heaven's help. Remember everything that your Father in Heaven has done for you personally. Use those memories to sustain you throughout your trials. Be the one who is listening and helping. Paraphrasing John chapter 3, verse 16, always remember that God so loved you that he gave his only begotten Son, that if you should believe on him, you should not perish but have eternal life. I leave these things with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was motivated by love, with thoughts from Russell T. Osgothorpe and William B. Lund. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.